0: Well good morning again, and uh, welcome again. It's good to have you guys with us today in person and online. Uh, as I said before, I'm Cal I'm the pastor here, and I'm excited to be so. Uh, if you've got your Bibles or a device you look up Scripture with, go ahead and open to Micah chapter one, Micah chapter one. That's one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. It's on page 1341, in my Bible. I don't know about yours. But anyway, uh, go ahead and open to Micah chapter 1. That's where we're going to be camped out. Uh, Today, we are launching into a new series through the Old Testament book of Micah. Now, Micah is only the second of the minor prophets... That I have ever preached through. I've preached through Jonah before. And now Micah will be the second of the minor prophets. I don't give them a lot of play in my preaching. And um, in the interest of, again, preaching the whole counsel of God. Giving us a, a broad view of scripture. Helping us understand the whole narrative of scripture. We want to be going back and forth between Old Testament and New Testament. And I thought that you, like me, probably have not spent a ton of time. In the Old Testament, minor prophets, and so I don't know exactly um, why God wanted me to preach through Micah this fall. I mean, I'm excited to dig into it. I don't know why God, uh, when I began to prepare months ago, why He uh, made it so that I ended up wanting to be in Micah. I don't. I don't understand how all of that has worked. But what I do know is that as I began to prepare and study the book of Micah and the context into which it was written, uh, I started to maybe understand why I needed to hear this book preached myself. I, I hope you understand that when I preach, I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching to me as well. Um, and, and during the week in my studies, uh, the idea is that the word of the Lord would work me over so much That it would work on me first, and then I would preach it and proclaim it to you as well. So I think I needed to hear the message of this book as well. If you would, with me, though, let's bow our heads, let's pray, and let's ask the Lord to help us, and then we're going to jump into some introduction to the book of Micah. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for bringing me here to Pastor. Uh, It has been an incredible year so far. Uh, God, there's a lot going on in the world. Uh, we think about the crisis in Afghanistan. Our soldiers who are who are stationed there, who are um, trying to get people out. We think of the the Christians who are there, who are under threat of death, uh, persecution. God, we think of uh, the Afghan citizens who are um, uh, in danger from uh, this uh, this horrific regime. God, we think about Hurricane Ida that is barreling towards the Gulf Coast. God, we think of. Uh, all of the people who are having really bad flashbacks to Katrina 16 years ago, almost to, to the day. Um, God, right now, we just pray for your rescue. God, we pray that you would intervene. God, that you would stop these things from happening. Um, but God, if not, I pray you'd be glorified. I pray that you would minister your word to people uh, during this time. I pray that people would be drawn to you Uh, whatever it is that happens, however the things they're going through, I pray that people would be drawn to you, that you would be glorified, and that people would come to know you as a result of this, God. Father, I pray even uh, those who are uh, soldiers who are rescue workers, God, I pray you'd protect them, but God, I pray you would spread the gospel among them. God, I pray that that, the true believers, the true Christians would so exemplify your character that people would come to know you, that even uh, some of the Muslim People there in Afghanistan, even members of the Taliban, whoever, God, that they would so see the Christians reacting, even if they're reacting in their persecution, that the gospel would be believed by more people because of whatever happens there, Jesus. God, the world doesn't look like we want it to look. It doesn't look like we think it should look. But God, we trust your plans. Help us to minister well, help us to pray well. And God, protect our hearts. Protect our hearts from hatred towards those who we perceive doing wrong. Help us to love as you love Jesus. Yes, seek justice, love mercy, but help us walk humbly with you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Today is going to be mostly an introduction to the book of Micah. We're also going to cover the first section, which is the first 16 verses. I know you're thinking, Pastor, whoa, that's a lot. Uh, And uh, what can I say? You're right, it's a lot. But we're going to do that today, Lord willing. And what I really want us to do with this series is I want us to see what God has said and look for the ways that in Micah uh, it points us towards Jesus Christ. See, the entirety of scriptures are about Jesus. He tells some of his followers that on their way to Emmaus after his resurrection. He explains to them the scriptures and how they all point to him. And he's using the Old Testament in that because they didn't have the New Testament yet. They were living it at that point. So we come to a man named Micah in the Old Testament. This is before the time of Christ. And Micah's name means, who is like Yahweh? Who is like Yahweh? Micah ministered in an extremely volatile and insecure political time in the history of the ancient Near East. The the nation of israel was divided had been divided into two kingdoms and we're going to get more into that later but there was judea and then there was the northern kingdom of israel and there were micah excuse me micah takes place during the reigns of three judean kings in particular the kings were uh, jotham ahaz and hezekiah i know you guys are just dying to name your kids that all right uh, probably not. And I would recommend, especially, don't name them Ahaz, okay? Uh, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. But uh, So it was Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, first was Jotham. And so when Micah began his ministry, Jotham was the king of Judea. And Jotham feared God. He was like his father Uzziah in that way. Now, Uzziah is maybe a guy whose name you've heard before. So just hang on to that. We're going to come back to that in a little bit, uh, or at least make that connection in just a minute. But Jotham feared God, and he was like his father Uzziah, excuse me, but he did not fall to the pride of his father. Uzziah had fallen to pride, and, and Jotham did not. But despite having a God fearing, obedient to God leader, the people still continued in their idol worship. They continued in idolatry. So that's Jotham. And after Jotham was his son, Ahaz, who was king. Ahaz was a terrible dude. Ahaz was terrible. He erected idols in Jerusalem. If that wasn't enough, he uh, burned his sons, as burnt, sacrificed his sons as burnt offerings to pagan gods. I told one of my sons that this morning. Like, hey, you know this guy Ahaz, he offered his sons as burnt sacrifices. I wasn't making a threat, okay? I was just pointing it out, that's all. Just pointing it out. He, so he offered his sons as burnt sacrifices to these pagan gods, and he even went so far as to close the temple. And God used the Syrians, the northern tribe of Israel, and Assyria to judge uh, to judge the nation of Judah. And if you want to read that story, it's in 2 Chronicles 28. We can just kind of jot that down. We're not going to go there right now. We're going to continue with some more introduction before we get into Micah. But you might want to jot some of these references down. And then, so Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. Hezekiah became king. Micah is still doing ministry because Micah is ministering for somewhere around 30 years. Okay, So even though his book is one of the shorter books, uh, we call them minor prophets. Now, we don't call them minor prophets because... Their message is less important. No, not at all. They're simply called minor prophets because the books are shorter. You know, you get a book like Isaiah, Jeremiah. They're they're much longer. Micah is one of the minor prophets, and yet, even though his book is short, you would think, well, he probably wasn't ministering that long. But it was like thirty years, I mean, three decades, right? And um, that's pretty incredible. So Hezekiah comes into power, and he rejected his father Ahaz's idolatry. He rejected that. He was uh, more like his grandpa. Okay, He was more like Jotham. He wasn't perfect. He certainly made some mistakes, but he loved God and he tried to obey. So those are the three kings that Micah is serving during. That's important to remember because you're going to see uh, just things pop up in reference and you're going to want to know that. So what does Micah do? Well, in part of Micah, he warns of a military defeat coming. Now we need to understand something about the political uh volatility of the area okay and i i know this is not a history class but this is important to understand the context of what we're talking about in micah the 800 pound gorilla in the room at that time was the nation of assyria okay they were led by military kings who were powerful and they had large armies that they used to control the activity in the ancient near east also there was a ton of idolatry that i referenced earlier idol worship going on there was, a, there was a danger that the people of Israel, the people of Judah faced in trusting in their own army or their military alliances that they could make with these other nations to save them rather than trusting in the Lord God. So you see they were in some volatile, political, national times. I'm sure we can identify with that, right? We can identify with that. We've, we, we live in a country... They lived in a country, okay? We don't have a king, uh, except Jesus, for those of us who are Christians. We don't have a king in America, uh, but we do have have politics, okay? And that's all I'm going to say about that, Uh, because that's not what this is about. But I want you to have the context and see how it can relate to where we're at. There were different, excuse me, they were also under difficult social and economic conditions. There were uh, people who had experienced prosperity and they weren't dealing well with it. They were not, the people were not being just with their prosperity. But also the country was war-torn. Uh, when the northern kingdom, the nation of Israel, was defeated, there would have been a large increase in poor immigrants coming into Judah. See, Sennacherib had attacked Judah as well, but, but he didn't conquer it. But his troops, as they're passing through the country, would have pillaged, uh, the, pillaged the country and the villages and the families. And after each of these wars, many families would have had to start over from scratch. Most of us have not lived in a war-torn country. We don't know what it is like to start over from scratch. Can, I, I tried to imagine this. And, and look, my... Um, my goal here is not making any political statements uh, about anything. I'm preaching the, the scripture, okay? And however the Lord moves that on your heart. But I was thinking about what's going on in Afghanistan. And I was thinking about it, what would it be like if I lived in Afghanistan as a Christian and I had to get out, or if I was just an Afghani who would help the United States, whatever, somebody. And I had to get out, okay? I had to get out, and I had to grab a backpack throw some stuff in and leave and never come back and never have anything else and just go to another country, Greece or somewhere else, okay, India, Pakistan, somewhere, where I didn't understand the language, the customs were different, and start completely over. I'm just thinking about that in relation to, can you imagine being in a situation where you're not leaving your country, you're in your country, This Sennacherib has attacked. His troops have gone through the countryside and pillaged. They've taken whatever they want. And now you and your family, though you're not put in another country, you have to start completely over. And it's not like you can go to the neighbor for help because guess what? They've got to start all over too. They have to start all over too. So that's kind of a little bit about the socioeconomic situation difficulties going on. Also, Micah has been referred to as miniature Isaiah. Miniature Isaiah. Now, I kind of like that. Mini-Isaiah. Isaiah's mini-me, maybe. I don't know. But they spoke. They, they actually spoke. So Isaiah and Micah were actually contemporaries. Remember I said the name Uzziah would kind of come back into play. If you remember, Isaiah was around when King Uzziah died, right? Okay, so again, looking at the history, we can pin that these guys are, uh, are contemporaries. Uh, they spoke to the same audience from the same city. The two books, Isaiah and Micah, actually share some similarities, um, but the two men were prophesying, so they were prophesying during overlapping times in the 8th century BC, okay? So we're looking uh, before, the, before the birth of Christ, And Isaiah, though, directed his messages primarily to the monarchy, okay, to the rulers, whereas Micah spoke more to commoners. And based on where Micah was from, we can see that he's kind of an outsider that God's used. He's kind of a country boy, if you will, because of the city that we find Micah's from. So during the ministry of Micah, the northern kingdom of Israel... As I said, they were defeated by the Assyrian Empire. The southern kingdom of Judah came close to the same fate. Micah had prophesied to both kingdoms and delivered the message that these attacks were happening because God's people were abusing their prosperity. They were abusing the blessings of God. And Assyria put the city of Jerusalem under siege, though they didn't end up defeating them. They put put Jerusalem under siege, but God killed 185,000 of their troops as they slept outside the city. Now, due to this, Sennacherib, their ruler, was forced to retreat. So that's kind of the story. Again, I encourage you to go read about that because it's actually really, really incredible. But by the end of the reign of Hezekiah, remember the third king that Micah ministered under. By the end of the reign of Hezekiah, there was a new threat. Babylon was gaining power. And Micah viewed Assyria and Babylon as instruments of divine judgment for the unfaithfulness of God's people. And that's important, it's important to remember, okay? Micah saw these other nations as instruments of divine judgment, God's tools of judgment being used on the people. Remember, God can use anybody he wants for whatever means he, or whatever thing he wants. At the beginning of the book, Micah predicts the fall of Samaria, which is the capital of Israel. Then towards the end of the book, he predicts the Babylonian captivity. However, most of the material in Micah is not arranged chronologically. So again, I said, we don't spend a lot of time in the, in the minor prophets because we read it and we're like, well, this, wait, what's going on here? Because it's not arranged necessarily chronologically all the time there are three major movements in Micah or prophetic oracles. So three oracles are or three major movements. and Each of those, you're going to, at the beginning, you're going to see as we move through each of those, they're going to open with a call to listen or to hear the word of the, of the Lord, the word of Yahweh. So to begin these movements, each time you'll read something that says, hear. He wants the people to listen or to Hear. And when we read, hear, or listen in the Bible, we should also hear and listen what is said. I said there were three, there were three divisions of three oracles, okay, throughout the book of uh, uh, three movements or oracles throughout the book of Micah. And the first one announces Yahweh's judgment on Israel and Judah, particularly on their selfish leaders. So that's the first one we'll come to. The second one we'll come to, is a contrast between the ungodly leaders of Jerusalem and this future-promised Messiah. Micah 4 and 5 offer hope that God will bring about this time of peace and prosperity. And he does promise that there is a coming ruler. There is a coming king. And then the third oracle begins with an accusation and a lament. Judah's accused of acting in an ungodly way, acting like Israel and the northern kingdom. And then Micah wraps up his book with this promise of forgiveness and future restoration coming. So we're talking about a lot about judgment, but we're also talking about hope. Okay? We're talking about judgment and we're talking about hope and restoration. There's two main themes running through these words. Two main themes. Number one, God's judgment against idolatry and injustice. God will exercise judgment against idol worship and injustice. Micah warns Judah that if they act like Israel, they're going to experience the same kind of judgment from God. And the second main theme is a hope that God's people will return to him and be restored. This hope that God's people will recognize the error of their ways. They will repent of their sin and return to God, and he will restore them. Proclaims, Micah proclaims that salvation will rise through a ruler from the town of Bethlehem. Spoiler alert, that's Jesus. Book of Micah is a call to repent and to authentically worship God. You can't live a life of complete and total self-absorption and then sort of tack worship onto it. Worship is a total reorienting of your life around God, and Micah calls the people to model what God desires in his worship. But ultimately... What we need to understand is both Israel and Judah were rejecting the Lord's covenant. We're going to come back to that, but they were rejecting the Lord's covenant. They did this by embracing idols and placing their faith in these pagan nations. It's all introduction, guys. Now that we have a picture, though, of what we're looking at, I want us to begin reading through the first chapter in Micah. We're going to be in Micah 1, verses 1 through 16. And read and understand what the Lord says as, as Micah speaks the word of the Lord into this context that he's living in, that the people are living in, that the people are experiencing, and what the prophet says, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth, Moresheth In the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. And will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will split open like wax before the fire. Like waters poured down a steep place. And this is for the transgression of Jacob. And for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Ephrath. Beth- Roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Sephir, Shaphir. In nakedness and shame, the inhabitants of Zainan do not come out. The lamentation of Bethazel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Meroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore... You shall give parting gifts to Morasheth Gath. The houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Maresha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle for they shall go from you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we come, I pray you'd help us to understand your word. Write it on our hearts, Lord. God, speak to me through your word, even as I preach. And I pray we would be a people that would hold nothing back from you, Father. Where we've sinned, convict us quickly, bring us to repentance quickly. That we may be obedient true, authentic worshipers of you, Jesus. God, this isn't about me. I pray you'd not let me make it about me. That you would clear out the things that are in me that are prideful, and that you would replace it with just you. Help me love your people well, and please help us see you today, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. Point number one, (laughs) after all that, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. It's not hard to read this uh, in Micah and look and see that the people were in rebellion against God and judgment was coming. And as Micah opens his book, he doesn't beat around the bush or have a bunch of small talk. He gives a short introduction and then brings some really shocking language to his readers. If you look at verses 1 through 4, Micah's meaning is pretty clear. God stands as witness against the people in their sin. He's coming, and He's bringing judgment, and uh, friends, it's going to be rough. It's going to be rough. If you look at verse 3, it, uses, uh, the, it translates a word there as tread. It says, for, uh, for behold, the Lord is coming out of His place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Now that word that we get that we translate as tread is actually used in a sense in the original language it's used in a sense of trampling or stomping not walking around but coming and trampling or stomping so judgment is coming god is coming out of his place and he's bringing judgment to the people and the question i think we need to ask is why why was this judgment coming upon the people from god in heaven why Well, firstly, if you look at verse 5, as a result of the sins of Jacob, we see where it says the rebellion of Jacob, it's a synonym for the people of Israel. Now, first of all, we need to understand how they got here, okay? And if you go back after church, you can go back and read 1 Kings chapter 11. We find that King Solomon, who was ruling, he was the son of King David, and King Solomon was ruling and built the temple And he worshipped God, but then in his old age, he actually turned away from God and began to worship idols. Now, God spared Solomon because of his father David and God's relationship with David, but Solomon's offspring didn't benefit in the same way. Solomon's son Rehoboam was another wicked dude. He actually was responsible for Solomon's kingdom being divided into Judah and Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms, because of the actions of Rehoboam. And so that all started, kind of started this whole downhill slide. Solomon turns away from God and starts to worship idols. And his son goes even farther and actually ends up being the reason for the kingdoms being split. God's chosen people split into two kingdoms. So it's as a result of the sins of Jacob or, or the people of Israel. And then also in verse 5, we find it's as a result of the sins of Israel. Uh, There was a leader named Jeroboam who had even created a counterfeit system of worship that had to do with the worship of, of a couple of golden calves. So the kingdoms had split and they'd gone into this, that their leaders, their kings, who should have been leading them and exemplifying serving God had either led them or allowed for them to remain in idol worship. Now, pay attention here. Even a guy like this guy Jeroboam, again, who you can go back and read about, um, even a guy like that, he erected this counterfeit system of worship. Now, he claimed to worship Yahweh because what they would do is they would say, well, we want a God we can see, and so we'll worship Yahweh, or we'll worship by worshiping golden calves. That is not the way that God has commanded he be worshipped. See, because God is God, he gets to say how we worship him. And he says not to create a carved image, not to create idols, not to worship idols, not to worship an image in any way. Now pay attention here. This guy that created this counterfeit system of worship... He claimed to worship Yahweh, even while his worship practices abandoned true covenant worship. And this filtered down over the years to where we find ourselves here in Micah. But I want to point that out real quick, because because I don't want you to miss that. He claimed that he was worshiping Yahweh. He claimed he was worshiping God. But his worship practices, in other words, his words said, I worship God, but his actions did the opposite of worshiping God. I point that out because it is a position that many of us very easily find ourselves in, sometimes even today. We would say, I worship God god i worship jesus i have surrendered to jesus and the things in our life say something different they tell a different story in uh, verses six and seven it says therefore i will make samaria a heap in the open country a place for planting vineyards and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Do you catch that? And this isn't only in this book that we find this, but did you catch that? We find this idea that Judah and Israel had become spiritual prostitutes to foreign gods. They were directly disobeying God's law. The people had rejected God as king by rejecting his covenant that he had made with them. He was faithful to the covenant he initiated with them. And yet they sold themselves off to the worship of other idols. Becoming spiritual prostitutes. Is that sharp language? Oh yeah. Is that shocking language? Oh yeah. Why would Micah use such shocking language? Because he wants to get the attention of distracted people. He had a people who were distracted by all the stuff going on. Assyria-threatening They're needing to uh, make money and rebuild their lives and all these other things. They were distracted and they thought they were God's people but they were worshiping idols. Let's continue. The people repeatedly broke the covenant with God in two ways. The first was through their idolatry and the second was looking to those pagan nations for their provision and their protection. Now, Some of you may not have heard the word covenant before, or you've heard the word covenant, but maybe you didn't know kind of what it means. And I'm not going to go deeply into the whole meaning of it, but I will say this. In its simplest terms, a covenant is a binding agreement between two groups or individuals. Okay, today uh, we typically don't. Now we do, we have a church covenant, and we're actually going to be uh, talking about that here in the future because we'll be bringing that back in. Uh, a, new, a, a new covenant and having people uh, sign it as we did when the church was launched originally. So we have covenant, but do we understand what a covenant is? Today, if we were talking about this and we wanted to like use today's terms, people would more likely use the word contract, okay? Like when you buy a house, right? You, you go get a mortgage and you sign your life away it feels like right there's a there's a stack of papers like that thick right and you're you're signing all these papers and what what are you signing what's the terms of the contract well terms of the contract are basically this the bank promises to give you the money to buy the house and you promise to pay the bank on time every month uh for lots of interest with lots of interest okay over the years and that you will pay it back. And if you break the covenant... Now, they're not going to break... Giving you, They're going to give you the money once you sign that. They're going to do it. If you, on your side, break that contract, they take your house and you live in a box. Okay? So what we need to understand about this covenant was God initiated a covenant with Israel in Sinai. Okay? And you can go earlier earlier in the... Old Testament and read about that. But Israel, you need to understand that God initiated the covenant with Israel, and Israel agreed to it. They entered into this covenant with God on God's terms. In this covenant, Israel and God had specific obligations. God promised Israel that he would provide for their physical needs. He would provide for their spiritual needs. He would protect them from the enemies around them. God took responsibility for his people's well-being, and he did so at every level imaginable god's care for his people was total god initiated this covenant he said i will take care of you right and that's not an exact quote but he he promised to take care of the people and the people side of the covenant was that the people promised to obey god and to be loyal to him alone god laid out what loyalty looked like for them in the Ten Commandments. So they, it wasn't like they had an excuse of like, well, I didn't know what it was like to be loyal to God. You know, I didn't think I could. I thought maybe I could worship a cat. No, you can't do that because it's right there in the Ten Commandments and it's laid out. And that's kind of a, a boiling down of it. Obviously, there was much more of, of the Mosaic Law that they were given, but it, it was boiled down to what loyalty to God would look like by giving them the Ten Commandments. And we know that the first four... Uh, we call those like the vertical commandments, but those are the ones that were about dealing with God. Those dealt with loyalty, with loyalty to God, not worshiping anyone else. But then the final six dealt with obedience. They were the dealing with one another and how we were going to obey God within the context of our relationships with other people. And the people of Israel, the people of Judah, had broken these in every aspect, in every context. They had broken the commands of god they had been disloyal to their king who was completely and totally faithful to them now it's real easy for us to look at the people of judah and israel and kind of scoff at them you know all those idiots what are they doing they've got god what are they doing why are they why are they disobeying him it seems pretty clear he'll take care of them if they obey him what are they doing But then you take a minute and you think about it and consider how prone we are to exactly the same things in our walk with the Lord. See, we're not not bound to the Old Testament covenant in the same way that they were because of Jesus, but God's principles are still binding on our lives. No, it's not the same, same. But God's principles are still binding on our lives in the same way. And it's helpful to take an inventory of our spiritual lives by taking a good, hard look at them and asking questions like this. Are you, am I, asking this of yourself, am I embracing truth? Am I embracing truth, God's truth? Am I honoring God? Are you following God with your whole heart? Or do you make Him share time with your own personal agenda? Do your relationships honor God? Are you embracing truth in your relationships? And when we start to really dig at these questions and just kind of peel back the onion layers of our heart, you start to see how we struggle with the same things the people of ancient Judah and Israel did. I was reminded of one of my favorite hymns, Come Thou Fount, while I was preparing this. And the phrase that gets me in that song is prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Because of sin at work in our flesh, we're, we're, we're prone to wander away from God. We're prone to be attracted to the shiny things of the world out here instead of the Lord who has saved us. There were two key requirements for the people in honoring the covenant, basically. I know I said, you know, Ten Commandments, whatever. There were basically two key requirements. And actually, uh, Jesus was asked about this in the New Testament. Jesus was asked about this in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. He was approached by a Pharisee. And he was asked about this. Let's read there. You can follow along on the screen or, or in your Bible. Matthew twenty two thirty four through forty it says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus said all of the commandments, they hang on that, right? All the law and the prophets depend on those two commandments. Because if you're not loving God and loving your neighbor, you're going to be breaking all of them. You're going to be breaking them. If you're truly loving God And loving your neighbor, you're going to be be abiding by those. Now, these are the two areas that ultimately the people were failing in. It's how they failed to keep the covenant. And also, ultimately, those are two areas we are failing in, right? Unless you're different than me and you always love your neighbor as you love yourself. Or unless you're always loving God the way God commands us to love and worship him. But they were breaking... These, they they embraced idolatry, and in doing so, they're breaking the first four of the ten. Right there, and the first, the greatest commandment, loving God with everything, because they were giving their love to other things, to idols. They looked to pagan nations for protection and and for provision instead of trusting the Lord and being obedient. See, they traded the love of God for the love of idols. And they gave their loyalty to these idols and they wound up in bondage to the very things they were trying to worship. Please listen, bondage always is the result of sinful life choices. You may think that thing that you are chasing that is sinful, you may think that as you make those choices, well, it's just once. I'm not going to give in to it fully, I'm just, just I'm doing it this one time. But what we find from Scripture is that we actually become in bondage to those sinful choices. That's what sin does. It wants to wrap around you and drag you down. The enemy ultimately wants to kill you, destroy you, to steal your life. They replaced love for neighbor with a love of self, which led to them fighting for self-preservation, seeking the protection of other nations, and it led to self-service, seeking their own provision. And so we see in Micah, verses eight, uh, Micah 1, verses 8 and 9, Micah was sad about this coming judgment. And he was sad about the consequences of the people that the people were going to face. And he could simply weep at it. In verse 12, we see disasters coming. Even though the leaders and the people and the priests they're waiting around expecting something good. And in verse 16, we see that eventually the people will be taken into exile. So what was the tone? Because I know that you're, you're listening to this, you're thinking, Pastor, you're talking an awful lot about judgment. Uh, and, and it's right, I am. Because I think we just need to understand the tone of the prophet. We need to understand where Micah was coming from. As I said before, it's, extreme, it's an extreme tone. As we read the prophets, a lot of times, some of you probably don't read them as much because, boy, it's kind of a downer. They're talking about all this judgment and destruction and the sin that the people had done. It seems harsh, it seems abrupt, but it's because they're trying to get the attention of distracted people. The prophets had been speaking for years. It wasn't like Micah just came and was the first one. The prophets had been speaking for years, telling them, proclaiming the truth of the Word of God. They said judgment was coming and yet the people looked around and they were like, well, yeah, but we're good now. It's not here. And the prophets were like, judgment is coming. Repent. Turn to God. And they're like, yeah, but we're, we're good. We're good. Here's a key thing. The people believed they were not in danger. Well, pastor, the prophet said, judgment's coming, judgment's coming, repent, turn to God. The people believed they were not in any danger because they were God's people and they were in covenant with him. So nothing bad could happen to them because God promised his protection of them. One, as one author puts it, despite the fact that they had totally abandoned their role in the covenant of loyalty and obedience to the covenant, they had absolute confidence that God would never break his promise to protect and provide for them, regardless of how they lived. Over time, they began to trust more in their national identity than in God. Well, I'm glad we don't struggle with that. Anyway, sorry. They believed God would provide for them and protect them because they were children of Abraham, not because they were obedient and loyal to the covenant. They believed that they could live any way they wanted, even as idolaters, worshiping other gods and that God would bless them. And we should not be surprised that Israel and Judah drifted into this mentality. This is the bondage that came to them through their idolatry. Once we place our hope in someone or something besides God, we make ourselves vulnerable to falsehood. Ultimately, the people believed the lie. That their nationality, their national identity was enough. And we do the same thing. We're prone to set up idols and put our trust in them. And we give our time, our loyalty, our money, and even the time when we should be worshiping God to other things. We've created idols out of people in our relationships. We've created idols out of youth sports. We've created idols out of professional sports. We've created idols out of our, our private time on the lake, out of fishing, out of hunting, out of whatever, substances. We've created idols out of anything because, as John Calvin said, the human heart is a factory of idols. We're always going to create new things to worship. Bill Curtis writes, we worship God on Sunday, and then we quickly retreat to the temples of our other gods. Soon we become more loyal to them than to God himself, and before long our idols have trapped us in bondage. All the while we convince ourselves that God is okay with the existence of these idols in our lives, and that he will continue to bless us regardless. After all, isn't he a God of love and grace? Hasn't he promised to bless us? We find that we're hoping in the wrong thing. They'd broken the covenant, which, by the way, basically... If you break a contract, what happens? It's, it's null and void, right? When it talks uh, about mourning, uh, for mourning for what's coming in and rolling in the dust, that was a term for mourning that, that, or a, a form of mourning, excuse me, and it was done to identify with being dead. See, the problem is we sometimes will recognize our sin, but we won't really mourn over our sin and allow a, allow a godly sorrow to wash over us for our sin. Because if you just feel sorry because the pastor mentioned it, or you got caught, that's one thing. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance. A change of action, a change of the way of thinking towards our sin, and a way of acting towards our sin. A turning away of sin, from sin, and turning towards God. See, in the covenant, there were two sides to that thing. And the people had broken it. They had sinned. And they're called to repent of their idolatry. Repent of a divided loyalty. And believe the good news. Trust in the Lord who had promised to them. Now, pastor, what are you you saying here? Are you saying that we have to act a certain way in order to win God's approval? Nope, that's not what I'm saying. Because here's the thing, and I said it earlier. We all break those great commandments, right? We all break those. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, what's the answer? Well, I'm glad you asked because God actually provided an answer for that. Because the blood of bulls and animals was not sufficient for an all time sacrifice for sin. It wasn't sufficient to cover all of our sin. And what I don't want to do is, I don't want you to come here and think, well, I got to continue to act, I got to try real hard. And like, Pastor gave me a bunch of homework, uh, just a spiritual to do list, right? What I want to tell you is there's one person who truly offers hope to the world. There's one person who offers forgiveness of our idolatry, forgiveness of our running from God, forgiveness of our divided loyalty, forgiveness of giving our time we should be in worship to other things. Friends, look, the pandemic has done a lot of stuff uh, in in our world. And one of the things it has done, I do believe, is... Um, you are seeing, and we are seeing in America, a lot of people, I don't know about other countries, but in America, a lot of people who, they came to church, um, some of them, it was vestiges of something that they had done kind of all their lives, they had just come, but they weren't really plugged in, they thought, I'll go on Sunday, I'll kind of do my piece, and then I'll go on and, you know, do whatever I do, and and maybe, maybe they were just real tired, so they decided not to come today, or they didn't do this, or whatever, and the, and, and gradually, well, we've got, a, we've got a soccer game, or we've got a baseball game, or we've, well, there's this, I want to I watch this movie, or we got this thing. Or... And gradually, you would see them before the pandemic, be gone for a month or two or whatever. But then what the pandemic did is we had an extended period of time where it was deemed by some not to be safe to come out and go to church. And Right. And, and no judgment there on people like we still have people who are not comfortable showing up and no judgment whatsoever on them. OK. Uh, and don't don't hear judgment on that whatsoever. But what we have seen in the church in America is that as that has happened, there's a bunch of people, primarily these people who were a little more fringely involved, who they're not coming back. And they're giving that Sunday, that time of gathering with the people of God to worship God. And they're giving that to something else. Now for some of them it was because they never knew God. Uh, they never knew the Lord. Um, for others, they've just, got, they've just gotten off track and into bondage of something. But we can see the same thing happening in us. And Jesus is the savior of the church. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one from Micah. Only he provides the hope of salvation and freedom from the bondage to our sin and and life with living with a purpose for him. Bringing him glory. And he provided this. He did this by giving his perfect life on the cross. See, you're not going to live the perfect life loving God and loving others the perfect way, but you, don't, you can't, and you don't have to, because Jesus did that in your place. He lived the perfect life that you and I can't live. And he died a death in the place of sinners, literally taking our sin upon himself. And he rose three days later from the grave. He had exchanged our sin upon himself and given us, imputed to us his righteousness, his right standing before God. So that when God looks at us, He doesn't just look at us and see someone who's broken His law. He sees the right standing of Christ before Him. When we place our hope and our trust in Jesus. When we repent of our sin and believe the good news. Jesus is so good. He is Lord. He is King. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one worthy of our obedience. In fact, I'm going to say this, the only appropriate response to Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf for your sins on the cross, the only appropriate response is unswerving loyalty and obedience to Him. But just like Israel and Judah, we're, we're prone to wander. We're prone to chase the shiny thing. And still, still, God promises rescue in the form of Jesus. Because God ultimately... He will always keep his promises. See, they'd broken the covenant, but God said there's a ruler coming because God was still keeping his side of the covenant. They disobeyed and they had to face judgment for that if they did not repent. But God still promises rescue. And he still promises rescue in the form of Jesus Christ. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus as you are and experiencing him releasing you from your bondage to sin and cleaning you up. Don't try to get yourself cleaned up before you come to him. Come to him and let him undo your bonds and clean the dirt off you. Would you stand and pray with me this morning? As we pray, I'm going to ask the musicians to come forward and lead us in our final song. And I just want to remind you, if you're a member, hang hang around for the members meeting afterwards. Um, But as we come to this time and we pray, um, if the Lord has convicted you of something and you need to talk, um, I'll be around afterwards. You can grab a hold of me and and we got to do the meeting and stuff, but we'll figure something out. We'll set up a time or you can hang around afterwards. Don't let today be another day where you realize something is wrong between you and God and you don't make any steps to do anything about it. Seek him today. Seek him in his word. Seek him in prayer. And then be prepared to repent where you've sinned and obey the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, God, I come before you and I thank you for this body of believers who's gathered here this morning. I love them so much, God. I thank you for bringing me here, God. I I'll never pretend to know all of your plans and purposes uh, in specific. God, we do know that you want us to repent of our sins and to believe the good news. You want our loyalty. You deserve our loyalty. You're the only one worthy of it. No one else is worthy of worship and praise but you, Jesus. God, if there's somebody here who maybe today was the first time they heard the gospel, that you died for their sins, in their place, and that by repenting of their sins, trusting in you for salvation, surrendering to you as Lord and Savior, God, that they uh, they can have life eternal with you in heaven, they can have abundant life, forgiveness of sins, freedom from the bondage of sin, then today, God, I pray, would be their day of salvation, that they would cry out to you, and that they would seek uh, either myself or one of the deacons or other leaders out, find out how they can begin a relationship with you and follow you, Jesus. Help us be faithful and obedient. Bring us quickly to repentance of our sin when we step out of your way, Jesus. I just pray you move, continue to move in our hearts as we sing. In Jesus' name I pray.